0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello. Welcome to the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, it is my blessing and my hallowed honor to be in dialogue with Dr. Roslyn Weiss. She is Professor Emerita of Philosophy at Lehigh University in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Today, we will be discussing her newly edited volume, Hastai Kreskas, Collected Writings, published in Jerusalem by the Library of the Jewish People, 2023. Roslyn, I'm delighted to be in dialogue with you today.
0: Thank you so much. My pleasure.
1: To begin, can you kindly tell us about yourself? Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life inspired the scholar you'd become as an adult?
0: Uh, I was born in Brooklyn um, in a neighborhood called Bensonhurst, which was a mixed Italian and Jewish neighborhood. I uh, I attend uh, my my family was what we would call modern Orthodox. Um I attended the local little yeshiva around the corner called Yeshiva Ohil Moshe. And then uh for high school I went to yeshiva Flatbush. Uh that's in those two schools is where really where I have my basis in in Jewish learning and in particular in Hebrew my proficiency in Hebrew whatever it is uh, stems from those early years and uh, whatever I was able to accomplish in terms of translating I really I really owe it to those two schools um, after after high school I went to Brooklyn College um, in high school actually I had my first Jewish philosophy course. It was taught by our math professor, uh, Dr. Walawelski. Uh, so he taught us Jewish philosophy and was my first exposure. Um, and then when I when I went to college, my great interest in philosophy blossomed right away uh, through my exposure to Plato, which my first course when I, I, I studied Plato's Republic and I fell in love with philosophy. And I don't know you know, if if there had been Jewish studies at that time that were, were a thing at, at universities. Uh, perhaps that would have been the, the direction my studies took. But at that time, there was no such thing. We did have one adjunct professor who taught a course at night in Jewish philosophy. So I took that course. I liked it very much. But there was no future in that at that time. And so um, my heart, anyway, belonged to Plato at that point. <laughs> And um, I began uh, seriously studying Plato. And uh, after I graduated from Brooklyn College, I went on to Columbia and got my degree in philosophy from Columbia. But interestingly, uh, after I got my degree at Columbia, which was in 1982, uh, a few years after that, I decided um, that I, I really needed to study Jewish philosophy and Jewish studies uh, on a, at a higher level anyway. And I enrolled in a master's program in Jewish studies and got a master's in 1992 from the Baltimore Hebrew University. <laughs> so I have a kind of odd uh, trajectory of, of, of uh, study, but I've, I've written mostly on Plato. I just, my, my fifth book on Plato is currently in production. And, uh, but I have written a lot on, especially Maimonides, but not only Maimonides, And also my other areas of interest have been ethics and uh, philosophy of religion.
1: Thank you for sharing. Is there anyone who was involved in the editing, research, writing, and translating process that went into this book and volume that you would like to thank publicly? Would you like to express gratitude to anyone who supported you and uplifted you through your time invested in this project?
0: I had the most help from colleagues as I did my translation of Light of the Lord. So there, I would have to credit a lot of people. um, Lenny Levin, who who read through the manuscript twice and helped make make corrections, and uh, Zev Harvey, Chip Mannequin, uh, Jim Diamond, uh, Danny Lasker. These were colleagues who were very helpful as I did my translation. Um, As far as the the volume that we're talking about now, um, the people I worked with at Corinth. Actually, this library, the Jewish people, is is a sub subdivision of Koren. Um, the people there were fantastic. Uh, all the people from the publisher Matthew Miller through the editor Uri Bulag to everybody I worked with there was uh, just uh, fantastic. And um, I had no I had no interest in I shouldn't say interest. I had I had no thought of editing this volume, but it kind of happened. Um, because I was advising them on where to get all of these um, these different works of Crescas And before I knew it, they told me I was the editor of the volume. <laughs> so um it was it was just uh, kind of by accident that that happened. And uh, it was it was a great experience. Everybody there was wonderful.
1: What would you like listeners to get out of our interview today?
0: Well, I guess most of all, I want people to fall in love with Kreskos to see how wonderful he is, how important he is, how neglected unjustifiably he's been. Um, after the publication of my translation of Light of the Lord, there was a spark of, of interest, a scholarly interest in in Kreskos and people started writing about him. There really was a, just a burgeoning of interest in in him there was a, a, a journal that devoted an entire issue to Kreskas's thought. Um all kinds of lectures and symposia and all those kinds of things started to happen after the book was published. Um, so that was extremely gratifying. But there's more to Kreskas than that than that particular work. And there's really something for everyone I think um in Kreskas so that anyone who has a copy of maimonides guide of the perplexed on their shelf certainly should also have a copy of crescas's light of the lord and of this book um, because it this this book because it has even more in it than light of the lord plus <laughs> the other the other advantage of this volume is that it's bilingual it's so fascinating to see the hebrew and english uh side by side and um I think I think it's a, a, such a valuable book that if this interview helps at all, uh, making people see that how valuable this book is, I will have been happy to have done it.
1: What is known about the life of Chastai Kreskas? Can you share with us what is known about his biography? Yes,
0: Kreskas was born in in thirteen forty in Barcelona. He was from a very distinguished family of merchants and rabbis. His early life. Um was one in which he attended what we would today call a very modern yeshiva, because besides studying, besides studying Torah and Talmud, he also studied science and philosophy and Kabbalah. Um, he had very distinguished colleagues and also very distinguished uh head of his yeshiva, the Ran, and his, his good friends Ribash and Rashbahats, who who um uh, were his. Uh, good colleagues and his very famous pupil Joseph Albo. Also, I think was a businessman as a young man. Besides, besides us uh, studying in the yeshiva um, for a while, he and his colleagues were imprisoned. There was some trumped up charge brought against them, and they were imprisoned for a while. But um, it was soon revealed that the the charge had no basis, and they were released. Uh, after the death of Pedro IV, and, and the uh, ascent of um, Juan I, his son, to the, to the throne, Crescas um, was invited by the king uh, Juan I and his queen Violante Bar to come to Saragossa and to be the head rabbi, one could say, of all of Aragon. And so he moved from Barcelona to uh, Saragossa. And became very prominent there. I read somewhere that he was even the Queen's astrologer. Don't know if that's true, but that's what I read. Uh, she was um, she and her husband were both patrons of the arts and of culture and of science. And they really um thought very highly of him and and trusted him and his advice. And he rose to a, a position of prominence there. Um of course, the the central Tragedy of his life was the the pogrom in thirteen ninety one, uh, in which his only son was killed. So I think that had a profound effect on his life. So and so during his life, we don't know too much about what he's written besides what we have of his. But it's it's reasonable to think that he wrote many uh, halachic responsa, uh, because people wrote to him from all over from all over Spain and perhaps beyond uh, to to ask for his uh, legal advice. Um, unfortunately, we only have the four works of his that, that I guess we'll talk about in a moment, the four works that are uh, collected in this volume.
1: Can you Towards- tell us about some of the works in the volume? Um, can you contextualize them for us? Can you describe their significance and their importance?
0: There, there were four works that we know of that he wrote um and that we have um, the first work was a, a short letter uh, addressed to the Jews of Avignon after the pogrom of 1391 um it's a it's a very interesting work um i'll i'll talk about it i guess in, in a moment after i outline the other three works that are in the book um and it's it's a heart-wrenching work It's a heart-wrenching work, written right after the pogrom. I'm not sure why it was addressed to the Jews of Avignon, uh, perhaps to warn them. Not sure. The second work that we have is uh, the Refutation of the Christian Principles. This is a work that was written shortly after the pogrom, we think in around 1398, so perhaps quite a bit after that. Um, And we think it was addressed to converts, because one of the effects of the pogrom of 1391 is that many, many, many Jews converted rather than die. Those were their choices. And there were many converts to uh, Christianity. And um, this this was heartbreaking for, uh, for Crescas for various reasons. And um, it was written, this this is the only work of his that we know of that was written in Catalan, because probably the people whom he addressed were not versed in Hebrew. Um, it seems that he addressed it particularly to all these converts, trying to show them the error of their ways, that Christianity really, when, when put up against Judaism, has not a leg to stand on and, th- and that they should come back to the fold. I think okay. that was the basis of this um, this book. It was translated into Hebrew. That's that's the version that we have of it now, by a man called Joseph Ibn Shemto, who lived at the turn of the from the early to the mid fifteenth century. The third work in the volume is the Passover Sermon. This this book has a very interesting um, history. It was misfiled in both the Vatican Library and the Harvard Library. Um, and was attributed to people other than Kreskas until uh, in the late 20th century, it was discovered in those archives by Professor Aviezer Vitsky of the Hebrew University. He um, looked at this manuscript and he knew right away that it had been ri- written by Kreskas. It's very, very similar to the later work Light of the Lord, and it could not have been written by anyone else. And so um, he... Uh, Published it in 1988 in Israel, Um, and um, it's a a very interesting work. We call it the Passover Sermon. It actually has no title. Um, It's um, hard to imagine really what venue it might have been delivered in. You know, your first thought is that it was a Shabbat Hagadol sermon, a sermon for the Sabbath before Passover, where rabbis at least later, I'm not sure if even back then, rabbis would give a long sermon about the laws of Passover. Um, But one can't imagine that this work, which is long and complex, was delivered in that form. So really, we don't know. Um, It's interesting that it has two parts. The first part is philosophical. Um, It deals with uh, the exodus, with the, the question of miracles. Um, the effect of miracles on on our beliefs, how compelling they are. Um, it talks about the relationship between um, Passover and Shavuot, that obviously they're connected because we count the Omer in between. So he, he looks for what the connection is between those two holidays. Um, and it's, it's a very deeply thoughtful part. And the second part is straightforwardly halachic about uh, the search for leaven um he his principle was that um understanding must precede action and so in in this work as well as in light of the lord I, not exactly I'll, I'll clarify in a moment um the philosophical part the part that's thoughtful and um engaging intellectually precedes the part that has to deal that deals with uh, how one acts how one is to act Um, Let me just clarify what I was about to say about Light of the Lord. Light of the Lord is part one of a two-volume work that Hasai Kreskas had planned to write. Um, It's the philosophical part. Um, The the complete work was was to have been called Lamp of the Lord. It was to contain this first part, Light of the Lord, which um, challenges Maimonides' God of the Perplexed and is deeply philosophical. And the second part, which was to be called Lamp of the Commandment, which unfortunately, Kreskos never got around to writing, um, that was supposed to challenge Maimonides' Mishnah Torah. So here again, we see that part one, the philosophic part, has to precede the um, active part, the the, the part of the, of the work that would deal with how one is supposed to act, so we have a parallel here between those two works. Okay, and then of course the fourth the fourth word is the fourth work is his magnum opus, Light of the Lord, which, as I just said, was really the first supposed to be the first part of a larger work. Um, this work is magnificent, I think and I I think many people think that it rivals Maimonides' Guide in every way, in depth and profundity of thought. Um, I think it's probably more brilliant and more original than Maimonides' Guide of the Perplexed. It's a a classic that really we we need to study, we need to uh, accord the proper reverence to. Um, He does not say, Kreskas does not say, to whom this is addressed, The way Maimonides does in the guide. Maimonides says that he's written this book for those who are perplexed, that is for people who have been steeped in Judaism and then come in contact with philosophy and become confused. Prescott does not say to whom he's writing, for whom he's writing this book, but I think it's fair to say that he's writing it for those who have been taken with the guide, or maybe even taken in by the guide. He's very concerned about the seductiveness of Maimonides' guide. And uh, I think it's pretty clear that he thinks that in the way that Maimonides was seduced by Aristotle, the readers of the guide were seduced by Maimonides. And he's trying very hard to pull people away from that, my, that Aristotelian influence, which to his ear, to his heart does not have um, a Jewish flavor. There is a, a kind of intellectualism in the guide um, in which the most important thing is to develop one's intellect. The way to God is to develop one's intellect. God is a God of intellect who is so supreme that the only thing he can have intellection of is himself. So you have a kind of self-contained God um, to whom people strive via their intellects. Kreskas, I think, was uh, appalled by this idea and, and horrified by how un-Jewish it is. Um, and he sought to reinstate a, the God of the Torah, a God of mercy, a God of love, whose really essence is love, um, and to return those who, who who left um this very Jewish idea for the sake of this Aristotelian idea and uh, bring them back to the Jewish fold. Um I think I think it's it's interesting to ask, um, as I'm sure many people do, why uh, Kreskas devotes so much time? Uh, so big a part of Light of the Lord to Aristotelian arguments and the refutation of those arguments. And I think probably many people who love Light of the Lord will just skip book one that has all of that stuff in it. But I think that for Kreskas, this was crucial because I think Kreskas believed that for Maimonides, as for Aristotle, the only way to gain knowledge of God was through physics. That is, physics um, leads to metaphysics. If you get your physics right, then you will get your metaphysics right. If you get your physics right, you will understand the nature of God. And I, Prescott was at pains to make sure that the way Jewish people know about God is not through Aristotelian physics, which at any rate is not all it's cracked up to be, um, but really through Torah, that the way to know about God is through Torah and not not through physics. Um, so the the beginning of, of Light of the Lord is really devoted to debunking Aristotelian physics, um, showing, I think, mainly that Aristotle helped, him, him, helped himself to a whole host of assumptions to which he was not entitled. And so insofar as his physics is is questionable, his metaphysics is questionable. And we therefore do not have to accept that God is intellect, pure intellect, intellecting only himself, but rather um, we can look to the Torah for the truth about God, who is a God of, of mercy, a God of compassion, and a God of love. Okay, so that basically covers the, the four um, the four works that are in this volume.
1: Can you tell us about the 1391 pogroms in Spain? Can you contextualize them for us? Sure.
0: It's interesting that actually um, Crescas' uh, letter to the Jews of Avignon um, is one of our best sources for what happened in the pogrom of 1391 because Crescas goes into very great detail about how the pogrom uh, spread, where it began, how it spread, how many people died, how many people converted in this city, in this city, in this city. So it's very, very detailed. Um, of course, it's full of pain—the pain of of how many people died and how many people converted. Um, at one point, when he when he gets to Barcelona, where his son died, um, he's so broken up. Uh, he he can barely speak and he, he says um there wasn't there wasn't a Jew left in in some of these cities and um in barcelona all people had left were their bodies their their whole their souls were were destroyed either they died either people died or they converted and that was the end of their souls um it's it's a, it's a very heart-wrenching book um but I can tell you, I, I can walk you through some of the stages that he describes. Um, so the the pogrom began in uh, Castile and spread from Castile to, to Aragon. You know, it it always strikes me that uh, when I when I read histories of this pogrom, you know how historians try to pinpoint the reasons for these this pogrom and other other atrocities, and you know one can find reasons, but there's mass hysteria, there's visceral hatred that goes beyond any kind of reasons. So, you know, there are reasons. They thought the Jews were rich. Of course, there they were rich Jews, but you know, many Jews were poor. Um, they The Christians resented that Jews rose to, to um, positions of prominence. Yes, there were all these all these so-called reasons but in the end um it's it's raw hatred it's just visceral um and it's it's insane there's there's a kind of madness that gripped these mobs and they they just they, they went crazy so um uh let's see um I want to see if I can just follow um yes okay so in in July of 1391 the massacres began in Seville. Um, Kreskos talks about the Torah scholars, the cedars of Lebanon who were murdered there. One interesting feature, I think, of, the, of this pogrom is that the, the first people to convert were the intellectuals. They, they could not see what what it mattered, which religion they professed, because the way to God is through the intellect. So what difference did it make? So they were the first to convert. They were the first to go. The rabbis and the simple people were the last to go. Um, the rabbis, for the most part, held tight. They they did not. They they uh, were were killed rather than convert, and many um, ordinary people as well um, con- uh, died rather than convert. Uh, from from Seville, it pre- it proceeded to Cordova and Toledo. On the 7th of Av, it made its way to Valencia. In all these places, most of the Jews converted. On the 28th of Elul, Mallorca was hit. The following Shabbat was Barcelona. Um, Even on occasions where the authorities tried to protect the Jews, the mobs went crazy. They they even killed Jews who tried to escape to the castles. They barged into the castles. There was no stopping them. It was in Barcelona that Crescas's son was murdered and uh, Crescas calls him again in a heart wrenching way, the unblemished lamb whom I sacrificed as a burnt offering. So very poignant phrase. Um, In Barcelona, many converted some forcibly, uh, but many refused and interestingly, especially women, and they were put to death. Crescas concludes that there was nobody left in Barcelona bearing the name Jew. Uh, after that was Larita, followed by Corona, where the rabbis publicly sanctified God's name and died. Um, there, only a few Jews converted. Um, in Valencia, however, not a single Jew remained. On the 20th of March, in, in 5152, that's in 1391, Crescas reports that all that's left to us is our bodies. Interestingly, Juan I, who was um, the patron of Hastai Crescas, was able to protect the Jews of Saragossa, but he was not able to to, uh, protect the Jews of Barcelona. He fervently opposed murder, and he fervently opposed forced conversion. He thought conversion has to be done out of complete freedom of choice, and it's not valid otherwise. But for the most part, when when the um, nobles or kings tried to protect Jews, it was not for any such noble reasons. Um, they, first of all, regarded Jews as crown property and they protected their property. Uh, secondly, they didn't like the breach of public order that these pogroms were were um, bringing about. And the bourgeoisie did not like to see their business relations messed up. Um, for the most part though, the Christians, um, they, they couldn't understand why anybody would be so, um, so wrong, so wrongheaded as to prefer to persist in their error rather than convert to Christianity. We also know of these uh, of this horrible, vicious Christian um, preacher um, who, to me, reminds me of, of Father Conklin in, in the 1930s, uh, a really vicious um, preacher who was was very popular, Theran Martinez. Um, And I should also mention that those who had converted to uh, Christianity before the pogrom were among the worst offenders against the Jews, really vicious against the Jews. It was just a a horrible, horrible time. And I think for Kreskas, it was doubly sad that people converted because for him, If you were a righteous person and you died you got to bask in the light of of the divine after you died you got to be close to god but if you converted the opposite was the case and any chance you had a true or genuine happiness was obliterated so he he really lamented for the converts themselves what they were doing to themselves by converting rather than dying.
1: How did the murder of Crescus's only son impact Crescus's psychology? How did it impact his later life? How did it influence his writings?
0: Um, as, as you saw um, when I quoted what Crescus wrote about his son, you can see uh, this unblemished lamb whom he sacrificed as a burnt offering. You can see that he identifies with Abraham and he sees the death of his own son as on a par with what happened uh, in the Akedah, in, in, the, um, in the story of Abraham's near sacrifice of his son. And interestingly, Kreskas, when, when he talks about the Akedah, which plays a very prominent role in Light of the Lord, when he talks about it, it's clear that he thinks that what abraham underwent in that trial actually brought abraham closer to god rather than further from god um and i think that happened to him as well that as a result of this trauma that he suffered that he actually felt himself growing closer to god and i think in light of the lord he grapples with um why that is why does one feel closer to god when one suffers um, when one undergoes a traumatic experience such as this. So it's interesting when he talks about the Akeda, um he, he talks about the purpose of, of trials. And, and his, his conclusion about that is that a trial gives a person a chance to grow closer to God. That when you find yourself in that kind of position and you can um, can do God's will under those horrible circumstances, you you feel that you are growing closer to God. It's 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 just the way it is. And when when God's God's angel says at the end of the Akeda, "Atayadati," now I know that you are God fearing. The way Kreskas understands that is. is not that God is finding out something he didn't know before, but that something has changed in Abraham, that he was God-fearing before, but not the way he's God-fearing now, that as a result of this trial, his God-fearingness just zoomed up exponentially because of this experience of doing something for God. When you do something for God, you your feelings about it, about God, just grow and so when when the angel remarks that now I see that Abraham is God-fearing what God is noticing is that Abraham has reached a new level now of God fearing this that he did not have before and I think this was true of kreskas as well that he felt when he suffered in this way that he grew closer to God Crecott says something very interesting here he says that, um, He really quotes a a principle that we credit Aristotle with, namely that by acting a certain way, you become a certain way. So um, by doing something for God, you become that kind of person, you become changed in that way so that you become a God-fearing person from having acted that way. And until you do the action, you don't reach that level. So um, that, by the way, is also the reason for commandments. The reason for commandments is because by acting, you become a certain way. You become close to God by serving God. You become close to God, and that's the that's the point of of existence of human existence. There is no no other point of human existence. So uh, you know, one also can think about uh, Rabbi Akiva and the famous story of, you know, as his as his flesh was being a flayed by iron combs and he was happy. Why was he happy at that moment? And he says, because before this, I could never fulfill the commandment of loving God with all my soul. And this was the source of his joy. And I see the same, the same kind of thing in, in Kreskas.
1: How can the writings of Kreskas advance our understanding of trauma?
0: So, yes. So uh, along these same lines, um, restcases thought that the material goods that we crave are what he called illusory they are not genuine happiness that no material things can bring us genuine happiness the only thing that can bring us genuine happiness is closeness to god so for him any kind of suffering any kind of trauma any kind of material loss it's inconsequential if if those things can be transformed into things that bring you closer to god so you know it's very hard for us to understand this idea that um suffering can bring you closer to god that trauma can bring you closer to god because these the things that we care about which are material and bodily things are simply not important and simply do not really contribute to our happiness i'm reminded sometimes of of socrates in in this connection Because Socrates said that, you know, his his opponents can do whatever they want to him, and they can't harm him. No matter what they do, they can't harm him because his soul is pure. Here is somebody who um, so identified with his soul that he didn't regard any kinds of material goods as beneficial. The only thing that mattered to him was that he was a just man and nobody could take that away from him, and so nobody could really harm him. Um, Aristotle thought this was total foolishness. Aristotle thought you couldn't be happy without external goods, even such things as good birth and being good-looking. He thought, how could you be happy without those things? Um, Kreskos was not that way, uh, Socrates was not that way, and clearly Rabbi Akiva was not that way. So I think we have we have something to learn from Kreskas in this regard.
1: How can Crescus's writings contribute to theological and philosophical discussions of theodicy? How can Kreskas' writing contribute to debates surrounding God and evil?
0: Yeah, so the simple answer to that is that evil, what we call evil, is illusory. Insofar as we maintain our closeness to God, none of these other things matter. So it's... it's uh, again, very difficult for, for ordinary people to embrace this kind of thinking, but he doesn't grapple with the Odyssey because he thinks these bad things that happen are not bad things. You know, The things that are bad are things like conversion, things things that, that distance you from God. Um, transgression, those are bad things because they distance you from God. But um, being poor or suffering a tragedy, those are things that can bring you closer to God. That's true happiness so it's not a question for him in quite the same way as it is for other thinkers who value other things.
1: Can you tell us about Crescas's views on free will? Can you elaborate on how he understands free will?
0: Crescas is notorious for having been a determinist. I'd like to put this in context for you. Um, Crescas <clears throat> begins book two of Light of the Lord by citing six fundamental principles, which he calls pinot or cornerstones, without which there could not be a Torah. As I see it, the first three are God centered and the final three are man centered. The first three are knowledge, providence, and power, those are all uh, aspects of God. And the second three are prophecy, choice, and the purpose of existence, which I see as as human. So we see that the second in the second group is also the central one, which is human choice. And it's hard to understand how human choice could be a cornerstone for Kreskas, a really fundamental principle of Judaism if he was indeed a complete determinist. Um, Nevertheless, when you do read Kresskos, you see that he is a causal determinist, by which I mean that what a person does is um, necessitated by the causes that precede what he does and their relative weights. So the causes that are stronger will determine what a person will do. Interestingly, uh, Kreskas also believes that our beliefs are causally determined. And I will talk about that in a moment because it's a a very interesting view that he holds. As far as uh, where free will would come in, in a a world where our actions are causally determined, what Kreskas says is that there are two areas in which we do have free will. And those areas are our attitude, and effort. That is, um, are we happy about what we're doing or are we unhappy about what we are doing? And then as far as effort, do um, do we exercise effort in trying to bring about what we are going to do or do we resist what we are about to do? So we might see that we're going in the right direction, be happy about it and do whatever we can to bring it about, to help bring it about, or we can see that we're going in the wrong direction, we can be unhappy about it, um, we can think, I wish I weren't doing this, even as we see that we're doing this, and we can exert effort to, to do otherwise, even as we know that what we're going to do, we're going to do. Um, so in these, in these two aspects, uh, Hasdai Kraskas talks about free will, and um, he quotes the Talmudic passage that says, thoughts of transgression are worse than transgression because what he recognizes is that the thought, the attitude, the desire is within our control, whereas what we actually do is far less within our control. One really fascinating aspect of Kreskas's view is is that beliefs are also, as he says, not in our control. If will were, were um, active, in our beliefs, then we could will ourselves to believe anything. We could will ourselves to believe that two plus two equals five, or we could follow um, a demonstration of, of a mathematical nature or a logical proof and um, will ourselves not to believe the conclusion, even though we've witnessed this uh, absolutely um, undeniable uh, proof. And so, Um, And so he believes that belief, as well as action, is not within our control. And um, he, for that reason, for example, disagrees with Maimonides, for whom the first commandment in the Ten Commandments is a commandment to believe in God. And for Kreskas, we cannot be commanded to believe in God because because commandments require will, and what we believe is outside of our will. And so um, with respect to belief, as with respect to action, all that he can say is that um, we have with belief, just as with action, we have the ability to be happy or unhappy about what we believe. Are we happy that we believe in God or are we unhappy that we believe in God? And then also we can exert effort do we try to understand our beliefs? Do we try to investigate them? Do we try to prove them? Or do we just accept them and walk away? So those are the areas in which we have free will,
1: according to Kreskas. That's so interesting.
0: It's interesting, too, that um, Kreskas holds, unlike most of us, that what we are control in control of is our Feelings and not our beliefs and actions. Most of us think that it's our beliefs and our actions that we are in control of, but how can we help what we feel? But for Kreskas, it's our beliefs and our actions that are caused and we cannot control, but it's our feelings, our attitude that we are in control of.
1: How did Hastai Kreskas understand miracles? What are the similarities and differences between his discussions of miracles in light of the Lord and in his sermon on the Passover? What are the continuities between the discussions of miracles in these works?
0: The works are very different. Um, there are overlaps, but the works are very different. The, in the Passover sermon, uh, Kreskos deals with miracles. Um, in, I think in three, there are three aspects of miracles that interest him. The first is the question of, do miracles compel belief? So in the Exodus, at the Red Sea, the the Jews experienced miracles. did that do those miracles compel belief? That's his first question, his most philosophical question. Um, and with that is the question of where what role does does will have in belief, which, as i as I already said, he thinks will has no no role in belief. The second question that he deals with is the miracles themselves, for whom they were performed, why they were performed, what their purpose was. Um, There were were obviously many miracles performed for different reasons. Um, And so he goes into great depth about each of the the miracles and what their reason was. And the third thing that he's interested in, in in terms of um, miracles, is the connection between the miracles at, at the Exodus. And the Red Sea and um, Shavuot, the, the, the revelation at Sinai. What is the connection between those two those two things? Those are his questions in, in the Passover sermon. Um, in light of the Lord, it seems that his main concern with miracles is to argue that human beings, no matter how perfected, cannot perform miracles. And it seems that there is a conflict between um the Passover sermon and light of the Lord, because at least it seems theoretically in the Passover sermon that um, miracles could be performed by perfected people. I think if one looks really carefully at it, um, it doesn't. It doesn't really. It doesn't really argue that. It really argues that people can think that. Um, that miracles are performable by human beings. But one thing we see in the Passover sermon is that Moses, who was surely the most perfected human being, um, one of his fears was that people would think that he's performing the miracles. And so he actually asked God for a sign to convince the people that he isn't performing the miracles on his own. So I don't see that great a difference between the two. But the discussion of miracles in, in the Passover sermon is utterly fascinating. Um, What what Hastai Kreskas argues is that there are three levels of conviction, which he calls emunah in a broad sense. One can have a belief, which he calls dot. one can have a belief and recognize that other people might believe differently and um, accept that, accept that other people might believe differently. Um, one can have emuna in the narrow sense where you have total conviction about something. Um, you can't even imagine how anyone could believe otherwise, but um, it's it's still not 100% secure. And the third level is what he calls emut or verification. And that level is the level of logical proof and mathematical proof where they're, they're just objectively true and and there is no room for doubt. Then he asks, well, what about the miracles? Do miracles compel belief? Do they, to what level do they rise? And here what he argues is that miracles do do not compel belief. They help strengthen faith that's already there or they help instill faith, but people can always question them. They can think it was sorcery, witchcraft. They can think it's a natural occurrence. They're never quite sure. But some miracles are so compelling that perhaps they they rise to the middle level, the level of Emunah, where you are so convinced that you can't even imagine that somebody could doubt what it is that you you have been convinced of. At this level, um, we find the miracles of the Exodus and the miracles at the Red Sea. When the Jews saw those miracles, the, the Torah says after that, that they believed in God and in Moses, his servant. They could not imagine otherwise. However, Kreska says that even those miracles, as convincing as they were, were not permanent. They did not have staying power. How would a miracle not fade? It's uh, impact, let's say. How would a miracles impact not fade after a while? You haven't seen, you saw something something amazing, it convinced you absolutely, but what happens five years later? What happens 10 years later? And it, it, its impact has gone, has faded, but what happened at Sinai was completely different. Here, Kreskos doesn't really talk anymore about miracles, he talks about revelation and prophecy. What the Jews witnessed at Sinai was different. Not because it could reach the level of emut, of of uh, verification, no miracles can do that. But what was what happened at Sinai was permanent. What the Torah says after the the encounter with God at Sinai is that the Jews will believe in Moses forever leolam, and that's a big change. That's the connection between Passover and Shavuot. At Passover. The people believed in God and Moses and Shavuot. They believed forever. Why did they believe forever? Because they had a concrete thing. They had now the Torah, the permanent Torah that was issued from God at Sinai. And that permanent thing, the Torah, keeps the faith alive, keeps that revelation from fading because we actually have it in hand. And that's, that's how he connects uh, Passover and Shavuot.
1: What were the theological and philosophical grounds on which Kreskas objected to Christianity?
0: Um, I guess one could say that basically, um, like many people who question Christianity, his, his main concern was that um, it's illogical. The Trinity is illogical. He goes into very great detail as to what would actually have had to happen uh, would actually ha- have to be the case how could it possibly be the case that three is one and one is three and you know the, the illogicality of that was was astonishing to him the the virgin birth how could that take place? he tried to he tried to imagine what would have to happen in order for there to be a virgin birth. He was disturbed by other illogicalities of God being man and man being God. those were the most the most fundamental um, problems that he had with Christianity. There are two other aspects of, um, of Kreskos' view of, about Christianity that are, I think, worth mentioning. One is that um, when he thinks about the crucifixion, crucifixion of Jesus, he says that it's unfair, unjust, uh, for God to have allowed that to happen. Um, one, according to Kreskos, one is responsible for one's own transgressions, and one cannot be punished for the transgressions of others, you cannot justly be punished for the transgressions of others. And since Jesus' crucifixion, since his death was not a voluntary act, it was not an act of worship on his part, but it was an involuntary act. And as such, cannot be considered an act of worship. It can only be seen as an act of punishment. And according to Kreskas, um, one should not be punished for sins that are not one's own. He also says, and this I think is is quite, quite unique. <laughs> um, he also says that if we are allowing one person to redeem the sins of another, the first person should at least be of the same species as the person whose sins he is redeeming. And Kreska says, well, Jesus is not of the same species as the rest of us. Insofar as he is also God and not just purely human, but also God, he is not even of the same species. And so he cannot be in a position to redeem the sins of those of a completely different species. The second interesting aspect of of his criticism of Christianity is that he sees Christianity as demanding of human beings far more than human beings can attain. Um, the, incur- the the requirement of Christianity that we avoid such things as anger, as gluttony, as um, hate, all those kinds of things. Um, these are things that, that um, laziness, for example, sloth, right? these are things that all human beings are prone to. And to say that if we cannot divorce ourselves from these kinds of things we will be damned to eternal misery strikes Kreskas as wholly inappropriate he therefore favors Judaism in which the Torah carves out a clear path to happiness and is open to most people for whom the demands of Christianity are not are not um appropriate um this, this puts me in mind of one of the reasons that Kreskas disagrees with Maimonides and his intellectualism. If the only path to God is through the intellect, how many people are going to get close to God? If, Christi- if what Christianity demands of us is too much for us, how many of us are going to achieve happiness? What Kreskas wants is to, is to say that the commandments in the Torah opens a path for all people not just for the elite not just for the intellectuals but for all people and he quotes quotes the ashrei prayer where um it's psalm 145 where king david says um god is near to all those who call upon him to all who call upon him in truth and the ashrei prayer ends with a, a quote from psalm 115 which says Um, My mouth shall speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. And the way Kreskos understands this is, yes, King David, he's a perfected person. He will praise the Lord and that will be all right for him. But he also says, let all flesh praise God. We are all capable of coming close to God through our devotion
1: and through the observance of the commandments. How can the works of Hastai Kreskas enhance our understanding of virtue ethics? What character strengths does Kreskas praise and admire? What character weaknesses does he condemn and reprove?
0: Um, Kreskas is, is again, here, I think, challenging Maimonides. Um, Maimonides, uh, toward the end of the guide, sees moral virtue, as uh, quite unimportant compared with intellectual virtue um it's uh, quite astonishing really the end of the guide um where maimonides basically says well you know if you live with people you have to have these virtues but they're not the virtues that belong to you as a person the only thing that's really you is your intellect and so he he quite denigrates um virtue uh, moral virtue crescas his highest ideal is love and fear of god much higher than anything else um certainly much higher than intellect um he thinks that an important part of growing into love and fear of god is developing your character and he says that the torah gives us both uh, instruction and in conduct And it gives us instruction and character by presenting us with biblical figures who serve as role models. Abraham as a role model for generosity, for courage. Moses as a role model for humility. Um, Kreskos is very clear on which are desirable traits, which are undesirable traits, arrogance, um, lust. And um, he's very clear that the way we conduct ourselves, whether whether it in how we eat how we have sexual relations every aspect of our lives all of those contribute to our moral character and one cannot reach love and fear of God without developing our proper moral character and so for him moral character is if not quite on the par on a par with love and fear of God um, it's absolutely necessary because one cannot achieve Love and fear of God, unless one's character is sterling.
1: Can you comment on the interconnections between the philosophical worldview of Hastai Kreskas and that of Baruch Spinoza?
0: Spinoza mentions Kreskas only once um, in a letter that he uh, uh, wrote to someone. Um, and in that letter, what he basically does is he laments the um, misunderstanding by later thinkers of the ancient proof for the existence of God. He says that um, the ancients proved the existence of God, not by, by way of the impossibility of an infinite causal chain. Okay, some people understand that there has to be a God because there cannot be an infinite causal chain. A causal chain has to start somewhere, and so it starts with God this is not, he says, what the ancients were arguing. What they were arguing is that there cannot be only contingent beings. There cannot be only beings who might exist or might not exist because all beings might not exist. What is needed is at least one, what he calls necessary existent, one existent, who exists by his own nature and does not depend on any other cause to bring him into existence? Okay, you know, so those are those are two popular arguments for God's existence, um, and he credits Kreskas with understanding that the correct proof for God's existence is the one about contingency and not the one about the impossibility of an infinite causal chain. I think, though, that it's important to say that Kreskos didn't think any proof for God's existence was decisive, any philosophical proof for God's existence was decisive. For him, um, we know about God's existence from the Torah. There isn't any other way of knowing it, um, for sure. And he quotes um, an interesting midrash. Many people are familiar with this midrash of a traveler who comes upon an illumined castle and... Uh, the traveler says, uh, could it possibly be that there is, that this castle that's illumined has no governor, has no nobody in charge? And at that point, the master of the castle steps forward and says, I am the master of this castle. The way Kreskas understands that is that Abraham, the traveler, um, he was inclined on his own to believe that the castle has a governor that there's a god in the world but until god stepped forward and communicated with him via prophecy he wasn't sure in other words you can argue philosophically and you can get somewhere and you can incline in a particular direction but until you actually have prophecy you do not know for sure and so again he comes back to torah as his ultimate proof and not, not to philosophy. Of course, I guess one could say that Spinoza is clearly influenced by Kreskas' view of free will, um, though he doesn't mention him in that connection.
1: Why are the writings of Hastai Kreskas relevant in the year 2023? How can they speak to scholars of Jewish studies, specialists in Jewish history, and students of Jewish philosophy? How can they speak to fields in the humanities outside of judaic studies how can students of philosophy in fields and subfields other than jewish thought grow and benefit from studying the thought and works of chastai kreskas
0: i think in particular uh, light of the lord is a classic Um, it's a brilliant work of philosophy And it raises all of the important philosophical questions, the origin of the universe, the nature of God, the relationship between God and the world, human choice, divine providence, prophecy, the soul, immortality. It raises all of those philosophical questions. And as long as philosophical questions are considered relevant, there is no reason why Kreskas is not relevant. Um, He has such important things to say about all of these philosophical questions that as long as they're alive he he is is relevant he is more than relevant the most enduring idea i think in kreskas's work is that of god's infinite love infinite love kreskas is is very clear on god's infinity in every way his infinite knowledge his infinite power but most of all his infinite love and um it's it's Important, you know, as a, as a counterpart to the idea that God is infinite intellect, which is what he uh, disapproves of. Um, and God love, if he is infinite intellect, I don't think so. Can we love God if God is pure intellect? Maimonides did. Maimonides talked about intellectual love of God, but it's a very difficult concept. Um, one loves God god loves us um that's an idea that is is central to all of kreskas's works and um it, it also challenges christianity in the way that um to 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 love god god does not need to be human in any way for us to love him and for him to love us he doesn't have to be human in any way so um i think this is an enduring idea one that um, that is it's really not found readily elsewhere um, in in the Torah in, in Isaiah Abraham is is called the one who loves me Ohavi Abraham Ohavi the one who loves me but Kreska says the love that God has for us is stronger than Abraham's love for God because God's love is infinite and he says that the Torah calls God's love, passionate love, ardent love, not simple love like a human being can have. So I think this is an enduring idea. It's one that can, that's transformative. It can make us uh, live completely different lives um, if one believes that God loves us in that way. Um, One grows close to God by serving him. That's the only way, by keeping his commandments. Um, And I think, um, at least for me, there's so much truth to to that to the idea that love grows to the extent that you take care of someone that you serve someone Um, those of us who who have taken care of older parents one can feel the love grow as one tends to them one who has taken care of young children can feel that as you care for them as you tend to them as you do for them your love grows and this was chastai's great contribution that the way we grow closer to God is by doing for him, by serving him. Um, He talks about Moses who um, pleaded with God, please let me take the people into the promised land. And, And Kreska says, why wouldn't he rather die? When he dies, he will be in God's presence in the divine light, basking in the divine light. Why would he want to take the people, those complaining, awful people, into the land into the promised land. Why does he want to do that instead of dying? And Kreskas's answer is astonishing. He says, because he wants to serve God. That's the most important thing for a human being is to serve God. And it's more important than basking in his light. So, um, so I think um I think Kreskas like Socrates, like Rabi Akiva, is in the end inspiring, and that's his relevance.
1: As we bring today's dialogue to a close, can you tell us about where your time and attention have gone since completing this project?
0: Um, I just completed my fifth book on Plato, and it's it's currently in production. Um, I had two projects that I was really looking forward to. I think uh, because of the turmoil in Israel, at the t- at this time, that um, the people who who were in charge of these two projects, um, their minds are elsewhere. I was supposed to, and I hope I still will have the opportunity to um, to translate into English uh, Joseph Ibn Shemtov, whom, whom we mentioned before as the person who translated um, the Refutation of the Christian Principles into Hebrew. Um, he wrote a, a commentary on aristotle's nicomachean ethics and um i i'm supposed to be translating that i it, i haven't i've been contacted and we kind of agreed that i would be doing that but it hasn't it hasn't materialized because i think of all all the turmoil at the at the present time and the other project which is really exciting is um that the whole scholarly world has been waiting for a for Professor Zev Harvey to complete his critical edition of Light of the Lord, he's been working on it for I don't know fifty years at least, and uh, everyone wants him to finish it. And if he, if and when he finishes it, um, we're going to try to bring out a bilingual edition um, with my translation being modified so that it corresponds to his critical edition. So those are the two projects that are in my future.
1: Wonderful. I wish you. Only the best of luck in both of those noble and righteous initiatives.
0: Thank you, Ari. It's, It's been a pleasure talking with you.
1: Thank you. It has been my absolute blessing and my hallowed delight to listen to your wisdom. Thank you so much for your eloquence, your erudition, and for all your thought and thoughtfulness that you shared with us during the course of today's dialogue.
0: Thank you. I'm very touched by
1: your saying that. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you as well for all the silent suffering involved in doing this work on Crescus. Thank you. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, I'm signing off as Ari Barbalat, your host today on the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. I have been in dialogue today with Dr. Roslyn Weiss. She is Professor Emerita of Philosophy at Lehigh University in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, we have been discussing her newly published book, Hastai Kreskas, Collected Writings, published in Jerusalem by the Library of the Jewish People, 2023. Thank you wholeheartedly.